Next, on the Ottoman History Podcast, we'll talk with Dr. Umit Kurt and Dr. Owen Miller about violence and archives in the late Ottoman Empire. We'll discuss what happens when we examine big issues on a local level. Yes, some of your findings actually even bewilder you. We'll also talk about what gets left out of archives. People were killed. Their voices are not being reflected in documents. And what questions we need to ask because of that. Why was this written? And why was it to end up in the archive? Why was it kept in the archive? And how did you have access to it? And finally, how the politics of the present shapes our understanding of the past. Our main problem also is, has to do with this denial of state responsibility. Stay with us. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Sechil Yilmaz. title of our conversation today is Studying Violence of the Late Ottoman Period. We're going to be talking with two scholars who, from different angles, have both tried to tease out the role of particularly local actors in different instances of communal violence during the Ottoman Empire's last decade, including during the First World War period. Our first guest is Umit Kurt. He's a postdoc currently at Harvard University, PhD from Clark University, Umit, welcome. Thank you. Umit's current book project looks at the Antep region of, of now southern Turkey during the late Ottoman period, and especially during the period of the First World War and the events of the Armenian Genocide. Our second guest is uh, Owen Miller. Owen is a recent PhD from Columbia University, currently teaches at Emerson here in Boston. Owen, nice to have you on the podcast finally. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Owen's also working on a, a book that deals with the theme of violence in a very particular local region, as we'll be talking about today, massacres that occurred in Sasun region near Mush during the uh, mid-1890s under the reign of Abdulhamid II. So in our discussion, we're going to be really focusing on three sets of questions re- regarding using sources to study violence in the Ottoman Empire. The first set of questions is, you know, where are our sources and what are our sources? The second set of questions is who produced these sources? What are the voices in these sources and what are the voices that aren't in these sources? And then finally sort of leading to a conclusion about how do we deal with the issue of credibility of sources? How do we separate truth from fiction? How do we separate subjectivity from misrepresentation and ultimately arrive at some conclusions about how to do more careful research about extremely important and again, controversial topics in the history of the Ottoman Empire. Before getting into those questions, uh, I want to give our guests the opportunity to briefly introduce their projects. So Umit, we'll start with you. Tell us about your current book. Uh, My book project um, examines the history of the Armenians of Aintab, particularly from late 19th century through 1930s, or the Republican period, with Mm -hmm. a particular focus on the um, deportation and the annihilation of Armenians, and also depredation, spoliation, and the liquidation of Armenian wealth. Again, I'm analyzing how the transformation of urban space was also carried out by the active involvement of local actors, local Muslim elites, and provincial notables, along with ordinary Muslims. And, 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 and of course, um, I 
actually the book gives you a, a historical framework and context of violence, the frame of violence, by focusing on the Hamidian period and the Hamidian massacres, which took place in November 1895 in the city and lasted three days. And the book attempts to explain how harmoniously, relatively speaking, for sure, coexisted an ethnically and religiously diverse societies, communities, you know, uh, came into conflict. And this, how the fault lines were, you know, uh, emerge out of these conflicts and mm -hmm. how these fault lines ended up eruption of violence, first and foremost in 1895, and then culminated in Armenian genocide in 1915 in this particular place. So it's a very local story, and it's a very urban story, in fact. You're dealing with a, a particular urban Armenian community. Uh it is it is indeed fairly urban urban story, but of course I try to also bring the the the, the voices of you know or the participation of Muslim people in surrounding villages uh, in the city as well. So Owen, um, your project uh, is actually looking at a particularly uh, a rural and geographically very isolated landscape in eastern Turkey in Sassoon. Can you please a little bit tell us about how you deal with this in very short period of time of historical context and the massacres and the violence in this particular place? Most of my book will probably be focusing on the history of the massacre itself that took place mm -hmm. over three weeks in August of 1894. But I would like to take the camera and actually zoom out a little bit mm -hmm. because it's a central part of of my research is trying to understand how the Ottoman state went into the mountains. Mm -hmm. How did the Ottoman state conquer its own territories? Mm -hmm. I feel that this is one of these huge topics that many people are working on in different parts of the Ottoman Empire. This is the question of how in the 18th century you had areas of the Ottoman Empire which were mostly controlled by local Derry Bay or Ayan. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the 19th century, during this era of Tanzimat, you had effectively the conquest by the central state of right. these areas. And this involved taxation, conscription, the removal of local resources toward the center, processes that bear resemblances to state building occurring elsewhere in Eurasia. Mm -hmm. uh, the same sort of things were happening in France. The same sorts of things were happening mm -hmm. in Germany. Um, whereby a strong militarized center conquers its own territory during the 19th century. And for me, in the Ottoman Empire, an important aspect of this is the way in which mountains, highlands, play such a critical role in this era of conquest. Right. So the Ottoman state, you know, conquered the lowlands or relative lowlands first, the 1830s and 1840s. The last powerful lord of Bitlis was overthrown in 1849. Mm -hmm. um, and it was only in the 1880s that many people in Sassoon reported tax collectors coming from the Ottoman state. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is quite late. And mm -hmm. I think that this backdrop is absolutely imperative for us to understand in order for us to make sense of the violence that took place in the 1890s. It's interesting that you use the word conquered because in fact, 
what you're describing is a process that isn't necessarily intended in its origin to be violent, but it's rather an attempt to achieve a more uniform kind of governance, a more thorough state presence in these regions, and of course, which does in practice, in some cases, lead to violent confrontations between state actors and, and, and local communities in these very differentiated geographies, right? People have described it in different ways, but the mountains are a place where you have a lot of different types of societies that aren't under this uniform Ottoman rule until very late in the period. And so Sassoon is one of these great examples. Sassoon is a predominantly Armenian center of population in eastern Anatolia. And then this gets into some even bigger questions. What do we mean by Armenian, right? Yeah, okay. And this is, and for me at least, lowland communities understand themselves according to Musliman, Gado Musliman, according to the taxes, yeah. uh, according to church bodies. But you go into the mountains and there's an entirely different set of local ontologies. Local communities in Sassoon don't quite fit into the neat categories developed by lowlanders. And so mm-hmm. I think we always have to bear in mind that when we say that Sassoon was perhaps this Armenian place, that is something that we can look at from a kind of retrospective yeah. historical way. But at the time, and even to this day, actually, people understood themselves as Reshkotanle, Belekle, Badekanle, all of these local ethnic groups, communities practicing religious practices that bore very little resemblance in many ways to the practices of lowlanders. Mm-hmm. And these have been kind of effaced from right. the history, from, from our histories of the Ottoman Empire. And the great diversity of the mountains, which re- it remains so that today, right. has been effaced right. from the story. And it's an interesting point, and it starts to bring us to our question of sources, how, of course, Armenians from the outside saw Sassoon as, you know, of course, a, re- a representation of a very autonomous, proud Armenian community. And of course, the Ottoman state saw them the same way as Armenians, whereas local actors may not have Umi, in, in, in the case of your study, in urban and especially in the cities of the late Ottoman Empire, the distinction between who is Armenian and Turkish is blurred culturally because they share an urban culture, usually speak the same language. Actually, this, this, this kind of blurness also used to give the, the, multi- the multiplicity of, of, of voices, multiplicity yeah. of you know, daily life practices, which has been quite ignored. In the in, in in the literature of especially the the post Tanzimat era, let's yeah. say so, that's why the local studies, the micro level studies, are really important to to be able to understand what was going on on the spot, to be able to find the reflections or expressions of the Ottoman centered policies at the very yeah. local level. But of course, there was a time period in the case of Aintab this blurness really faded away. So um, when we study the studies of violence in general, when we situate the actors within its history, especially as you mentioned, like a post-Tanzimat context, uh, we very much look at state as like a unified and monolithic, Mm -hmm. consistent body uh, within a very, with a certain rationale. And in your both projects, both Umit, yours and Alvin, actually what you're doing by looking at a local and locality. From what I read from your works, actually, you're also um, directing sort of like challenge to that kind of reading and yes. imagination of the state. Can you maybe a little bit open up how you're in your projects? Do you basically deal with this question of what is a state and yes. also how your sources helps you or challenges you back? When you dig into hone into the, the micro level of local studies, actually, right. it's very hard to apply. Right. So the the central role of state actors. But of course, these policies, these orders, these imperatives were are supposed to be carried out by someone else. Right. And this someone else, or actually, these mediating institutions, let's mm-hmm. say, 
uh, it used to be ions, so and then it turned out to be local elites or the provisional lotables. But what was happening in, 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 in the case of Aintab, what was happening at the very local level actually makes us revisit our definition of mm-hmm. you know local actors, mm-hmm. local notables as well. We are talking about fairly heterogeneous uh, and very fragment, very fragmented and manifold various actors. And their positionality did always vary from situation to situation. Right. And you can even create categories of elites who, let's say, might have been driven by ideology, who might have mm-hmm. been driven by sheer opportunism, mm-hmm. who might have driven by sheer careerism. And of course, this is exactly, you can exactly say the same kind of proclivity and, and pattern in in let's say so-called minorities of the empire of course armenian community is, is not homogeneous and the greek community either what i try to do what i try to position the role of local actors in my work actually i try to look case by case event mm-hmm. by event mm-hmm. and i did my best to not put them in a certain box in our former conversation when we we're talking about perpetrators absolutely and like how that even that uh, but how we imagine it also transformed. Mm-hmm. And- yes, some of your findings actually even bewilder you because for in the case of uh, Hamidian massacres in November 1895 in the city, I came up with the fact that certain local elites were really helpful and tried to save some Armenians, even kept and hid they, those Armenians in yeah. their home. And these very the same actors turned out to be perpetrators in 1915. So this fluidity actually also gives you an opportunity to, to see different point of views and also makes you to look at different sources, different yeah. body of sources. Yeah. And another example, for instance, it's, it doesn't only uh, pertain to the state, uh, the local actors. Mm-hmm. It, it's the same situation for state actors too. Right. Central state actors. Central state actors, exactly. In November 16, 1895, the situation in, in the city was really tense. And the district governor was really, really worried about the possible, high possibility of a massacre in the city. But the situation in Zaytun was so grave and the telegrams of the district governor of Aintab was so ignored, went unnoticed, because the district governor was warning the center, central state actors, you know, saying that the situation was very tense. I'm really afraid of the fact that the massacre would happen here and please send me additional mm-hmm. forces. But the, since the state gave huge importance of the fact that what was happening in Zaytun, the telegrams, the orders uh, or the warnings of the district governor of Aintab went unnoticed. Yeah. And this, the same district governor resigned, by the way. People are acting for all sorts of reasons, and ideology may be one of them. But personal career, as you said, could be another personal wealth. And also this, this idea of if there's a conflict between, say, Muslims and Christians, that it's necessarily about uh, identifying with those religions rather than actual other more grounded interests. Um, often gets obscured by the historical record because, of course, the, the actors themselves don't want you yes. to know that interest. Absolutely. So, right. and, and this was something that I found probably central to the history of violence in 1894 in Sasun is the history of corruption. That is to say, you have a local governor who was appointed by the center, by the palace government. And I mm-hmm. think here we have to be cautious yep. and say that there are perhaps not a single state apparatus, but several. And one of them is this palace government where the higher-ups within Abdul Hamid II's palace are specifically appointing people who are loyal to them. And um, Abdul Hamid II appointed Tasin Pasha to uh, be the vali or governor of Bitlis. This was an individual who profited off of the Armenian issue. He would routinely go around and arrest 
wealthy members of the Armenian community. And if they did not pay a certain amount of money, they would be imprisoned and a report would be sent to the, to the center that saying, of course, we have found these seditious individuals. So you can see how this can easily turn into a feedback system, whereby the paranoia of the central authorities could be increasingly uh, engaged by the self-interested nature of these corrupt officials who are using this fear for their own benefits. Which feeds into also the would-be like paramilitary groups that they claim they're, they're countering or the different political parties. We should mention the, the historical context here for our listeners. You know, the, the 1890s that we're talking about in Anatolia is one where you see, on one hand, the emergence of new Armenian political parties that are trying to recruit more support from these very local provincial settings. And on the other hand, the, the 1890s, due to fears, especially of Russian incursion into Anatolia, the Ottoman government starts to really see these, these regions of Anatolia as a, at risk either for rebellion or for incursion, as we said. So we're, we're dealing with a context within which suspicions are running high. There's a lot of talk of some rumors are circulating everyone's worried something's going to happen to their side and so especially within this context is where some of the questions we're going to be dealing with in the remainder of our conversation become so so relevant Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Sechel Yilmaz here talking with two scholars, Umit Kurt and Owen Miller, about their research on the history of violence in late Ottoman Anatolia. Uh, we've been talking about a particular historical context and some of the issues that arise out of the historical context of especially the 1890s in the late Ottoman provinces. This is a period that was marked by what some people have called the Hamidian massacres, that is the massacres of Christians that occurred under the rule of Abdul Hamid II. And it's generally been seen as a period within which local relations between Christians and Muslims that had been relatively fine for a very long time started to deteriorate started to deteriorate in the remainder of our conversation we're going to go deeper into some of the challenges that we as historians face when trying to study such events in such period we're going to be dealing with questions of the sources what they can tell us what they can't tell us when we, we should trust them and how we can use them even when they may indeed be uh, trying to mislead us and I want to bring us back into the conversation with a quotation. Owen, you were kind enough to put it right at the beginning of your dissertation. It's from Karl Marx. And he says, quote, Man makes his own history, but he does not make it out of the whole cloth. He does not make it out of conditions chosen by himself, but out of such as he finds close at hand. So why'd you put this at the beginning of your dissertation, Owen? I put it there to remind uh, myself and I suppose the reader that history is a bit like um, it's based on the the sources that we can find or that are available to us. And it's similar to the way that most archaeological digs in Great Britain are supposedly within biking distance of Cambridge and Oxford. That is to say, things that are accessible, things that are well-known, things that are mm-hmm. well-trodden paths. Um, most archaeology until very recently has been in regions like deserts where, uh, you know, digging has been easy. And I think the history of the violence 
the Hamidian massacres, has been written in such a vein. It's been written in the ways, the kind of obvious pieces uh, that have been accessible to historians, easily yeah. accessible to historians. The Blue Books, for instance. Mm -hmm. These are parliamentary papers that are easy to find right. uh, and to use. But things that are deeper or uh, more difficult, um, archival accounts, for instance, that haven't been looked at from the point of view, for me at least, one of the things that I found really quite fascinating was that journalists went in to the Ottoman Empire in the 1890s and they conducted investigations, systematic investigations of the violence. These accounts, as far as I am aware, have never really been used, partly because there's this belief that the journalists were fabricating their yellow press journalism as they mm -hmm. wandered around the Ottoman Empire, rather than right. actually doing serious investigations. And so those accounts have just been pretty much completely sidelined. And so you have this issue of convenience but the quote also speaks to the fact that history is a patchwork. Umit, maybe you can talk about sort of this issue of where do you get these pieces? You grew up in Antep yourself, you were telling me. And yes. uh, I know you've traveled a lot of places and tried to pull together a lot of different sources. So tell us about some of the sources we have. Yes. Actually, uh, to be honest with you, I really don't like travel. So I don't like traveling around. But I had to travel a lot. There was no full-fledged body of knowledge or source or, let's say, toolbox for me just to, yeah. to find my sources. So first and foremost, I spent, I, I spent you know, a lot of time in the Ottoman archives in Istanbul and then in the Republican, Republican archives in Ankara for the time period which I covered in early Republican periods. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the, the crux and the core of the, of the dissertation, the sources of the book, uh, is based on Armenian sources, primary and secondary Armenian sources, especially Armenian sources in the Armenian National Archives in Madanetaran in mm -hmm. Yerevan. Yeah. And then and I also use numerous uh, personal papers, yeah. private papers, mm -hmm. and memoirs. Yeah. It was so fascinating for me to come up with the fact that there were almost more than 20 printed books, 20 memoirs written in Ointa by survivors in yeah. the Armenian National Archives. Yeah. And then, as I said, when I reached some information that led me to go, right. ma made another mm -hmm. travel, and ended up in different archives. For instance, it's a, a testimony of a survivor, Kirikor Bogaryan, mm -hmm. who wrote, you know, I just got this information from another source that, you know, he wrote all his de uh, deportation diary. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about one and a half years in Hama, Humus and, and, and Salamia in Syria, in the province of yeah. Syria. So in order to reach out his, his diary, I ended up in Beirut. And then Haigazian Library, I just, you know, came yeah. up with the 40 boxes of his, his collection. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you had to go to France because France occupied Antep for a exactly. little while. And so you see how the sources get very spread out and that the sources are, are rarely located in the place where the events take place, but also that the collection that would be suited to the type of study you're doing doesn't exist because no state or non-state actor would ever necessarily bring all these sources into one place. The Ottoman yes. government had its documentary practices as the Republican government and various Armenian institutions. And Owen, how about studying an, a relatively more like isolated and inaccessible uh, landscape that's subject to conquest, as you mentioned at the very beginning of the conversation? What was what was the challenge for you uh, in that sense? Did you find any diaries uh, the way that Umit found? And I basically, my effort was to locate every narrative of the violence I could find. Mm-hmm and then to try to trace all of those narratives back to their origins. Mm -hmm. 
I went through the published archival Ottoman language documents. I looked at British, French, Italian, Russian consular accounts. I looked at the American consular accounts and missionary sources, memoirs written by locals, local histories. Basically everything I could do to try to track down as many different accounts of what took place as possible. I didn't travel as much. Most of these things were found actually at the Butler Library or uh, through the internet. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I'm <laughs> nowhere near as much travel, to be mm-hmm. honest. But um, what I attempted to do is to kind of compare the different accounts and to examine how f- certain newspaper accounts were, for instance, word for word, the same as accounts that were written by missionaries mm-hmm. and that ended up in missionary archives. Right. And how news of the violence moved from Sassoon to the rest of the world and the efforts of the Ottoman state Mm -hmm. at the time and actually local authorities, so the local state, so to speak, to censor and to control the spread of information. I think that leads us to the next topic, which is that of voice, because we've talked about where sources are a little. So Owen, maybe we can start with you. I think there will be a lot of overlap in terms of the types of voices we have for understanding uh, these instances of violence, both in the case of Sassoon and of Antep. You've already mentioned missionaries, different state actors. What are some of the other voices that we can find? uh, And and what are some of the voices that we have trouble finding? Um, When it comes to episodes of violence, the voices that we can't usually hear or almost rarely hear are the the voices of the dead. So people were killed. Their voices are not being reflected in documents. The survivors, um, their voices are, and often the perpetrators. But trying to find those voices is exceedingly difficult. They're not necessarily available in in places that are easily accessible. Finding those voices meant, in one case, looking for missionary accounts because the local ABCFM missionaries often interviewed both the perpetrators and the survivors of the violence. And they reported the, these accounts, sometimes word for word, according to what they, you know, the interviews that they had more often. These were just collections of different accounts that didn't have any names attached to them because to put the mm-hmm. name down would be dangerous. So you have many different voices, but it's hard sometimes to parse them. And I think one of the most striking things that I observed was when you look at the perspectives that are embodied in the bureaucratic and military accounts in the Ottoman archives, you have a very clear and single story. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look at the kind of accounts that are produced by the perpetrators, the survivors, or locals, you have a multiplicity of stories. Right. And that to me is one of the things that's most important is mm-hmm. we should be looking for a multiplicity of voices and multiplicity of accounts to try to understand what took place. And a single account actually usually is a signal that there is some attempt to persuade the reader that it, something very simple happened, where in fact, it's almost always a very complicated series of process things. Yeah, um, I, I, I entirely agree with um, Owen. When Actually, when you're dealing with mass violence, it's inextricable to not encounter different positionalities, different positions, different views of the actors themselves. But uh, this, this multiplicity, of course, you know, does not prevent from you uh, making your own assessment. You know, we need an assessment. We, 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 we have to. We, we have to explain what, what was happening on the ground. The, of course, the, the, to, to compare the sources 
is is extremely important. I mean, another problem is is the limited kind of knowledge that I had. That's why, for instance, in the case of explaining that how deportation took place, how people you know were set on on the way on the deportation road, there was nothing in let's say almost Turkish sources. And of course, the personal memoirs and the, especially the diaries yeah. play a key role uh, in terms of uh, exploring. Uh, the deportation itself in the city. Um, so one of the most important or one of the most biggest challenges in like studying mass violence and history of vi- violence, especially in this particular geographical and temporal context, is also the question of gender. And when we look at the history of the Armenian genocide, gender as a category is almost like taken for granted. And the, the women and children are taken as like a, like a lump sum category and that that kind of narrative is also very problematic because also that takes masculinity and manhood as an, an, an a, a monolithic category as if like there is one monolithic um uh body of men yeah um so i was wondering like how for for the future um scholars of the field what we what would be your suggestions and for your own future work how to deal with this question of gender actually it's first and foremost it's it's a very virgin area and there is a huge lacuna which is begging for you know being filled and in the case of armenian genocide and in the case of mass violence you know it's a it's this this taken granted taken for granted argument that okay you know all the the old women and the children along with children right. they were you know persecuted so they were like passive agents i can easily say in in the case of my my dissertation in the book book mm-hmm. project in in Aintab, in this very local level women armenian women especially play a very very active role in terms of especially our main self-defense right you know not only mm-hmm. not only in uh, in the post-war period but also even the Hamidin era mm-hmm. but of course you can reach out this kind of information from Armenian sources right. unfortunately so you can really hear the, the voices of women in Armenian sources and even particular dialogues regarding self-defense mechanism they were armed right. they trained their own children mm-hmm. they you know of course they were supportive of their, you know, uh, their husbands, let's say, Mm -hmm. but they were even joining small committee members, uh, committee meetings. These and and certain women, especially educated ones, let's say, at the time, uh, they were very politicized. They were actively involved in Armenian political organizations, first and foremost, Hunchaks, and then the Dashnak Sutun in Aintab. And, And of course, in 1915, especially the very the harshest you know uh, moment of the of the deportation armenian women were the only ones on the spot to take care of their children to be able to find survival mechanisms right. for for themselves and which amounts resistance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so and i think this topic uh, should be given huge importance right. and i can see in the literature in our field this 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 in- interest is but is growing silence, up. Silence the silence broken up exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think the silence has been broken in recent years by some of the authors whose names will be in our, the bibliography on our website associated with this podcast. What we write today has a lot to do with our own construction of society and the whole like gender mm-hmm. today as we imagine it. So yeah. th- this whole is also the reflection of 
how we see the society today. So I think that the silence can be only dealt with when we also change our perspective and our position where we stand today so that our, our, our observation of the history will also transform. Yeah. So the kind of like patch that Karl Marx is suggesting yeah. that it's going to make us to find new pieces of patches yeah. um, to bring into that cloth and make new ornaments and colors in that sense. Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's, a, it's even a historiographical question that a lot of the accounts, even though they involve like men and women, all different kinds of people, a lot of the accounts tend to be generated by men. Oh, and I know you've tried to find more accounts of, of when, when talking about Sassoon, a, an event that was very um, important, but had a very limited number of accounts due to where it took place to find women's voices and, and, and see how, how they depicted the, the events that they either observed or experienced. Some of the central actors in my dissertation are women. Um, probably the focal point of one of my chapters revolves around the experiences of Gulazar, a 14-year-old who's mm-hmm. kidnapped and raped by a local warlord, an event which precipitates local r- r- protests and mush then larger protests in Istanbul, and then protests around the world. Right. I mean, this is the age of the telegraph. So her story ends up being articulated often by others for her. But she was able to write her own account of mm-hmm. this many years mm-hmm. later when mm-hmm. she lived in Paris. And that account was actually one of the first texts that I used when coming to Moosh, when when I first um, arrived in this area. Mm-hmm. So um, Gulazar's account and the complexity that she dis- she has of the local environment that people don't necessarily fit so easily into Kurd and Armenian. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, there's also many accounts that I use from women who are part of the ABCFM, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign mm-hmm. Missions. Uh, there were more women involved in that organization than men. Yeah, so absolutely. it was an organization that yeah. was predominantly uh, women you know, who participated in very large numbers and mm-hmm. the accounts of the Ellie sisters in Bitlis um, and also of Grace Knapp, who was born in Bitlis and grew up there right. and who was in many ways a local. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, those accounts are central to to my work. Maybe for the remainder of our discussion, we we should really try to focus in on what we've been dancing around the whole time, which is how to trust the sources, right? The credibility of the sources. So, Owen, how did you deal with sorting out the issue of credibility of the different voices you had and, and, and sort of figuring, you, just figuring out who produced some of these sources can be difficult. Like, who actually wrote a text? Who, whose narrative, whose voice am I actually reading is difficult to figure out. How did you deal with that in your case? I spent a lot of time tracing sources um, by examining them side by side. So I would, when I looked at a particular article that first announced Broadly, I mean, there would have been an earlier article, but this was the broad announcement of the massacres to the world. This was in the London Times, November 17th, 1894. There's this mysterious letter that purportedly came from someone in Bitlis. Of course, there were no names attached to it and no real information, because, of course, to give that kind of information would immediately endanger the people who gave that information. It was widely disbelieved. People did not believe that this had actually taken place. Who who was reporting? I was able to ascertain through a lot of effort that this was almost certainly Royal M. Cole, a missionary, who wrote this account based on his own conversations with both perpetrators and survivors, as well as the British consul at the time. This was just one particular trail that I had to follow that led me from newspapers in London all the way back to the archival accounts in missionary archives. But I tried to do the same thing with every single document. So 
documents that were also often presented in newspapers, London Times, New York Times, that were sometimes sent from uh, various sources. It was anonymous. They actually closely fit, um, word for word, the sources of the official Ottoman depiction of what took place. So it's really important, I think, to try to understand where that official story came from, who wrote it, and why did they write it. And this is something I find that we really need to spend more time on, is understanding the particular histories of the writers of bureaucratic documents. And how did they get to that scene? How, who did they speak to? We have to understand their own world a little bit more. And in this case, the official account that was reproduced endlessly within the Ottoman state was written by this guy, Zeki Pasha, the commander of the 4th Army, purportedly or connect very close to Abdulhamid II. He went to Sassoon for only a few days and wrote a report that was based on a very well-known corrupt official. So his research base, his own research about what took place is, is very limited. And of course, his own incentive was to to hide, to cover up the story of what had taken place. I think there's an analogy that can be drawn to the history of Vietnam. March 16th, 1968, Charlie Company went into the village of Mei Lai and murdered 400 people, mostly women and children. If we look for accounts of that massacre in the press, you will see that it depicted this violence, that is the American state depicted the violence, in terms of a battle, a legitimate battle um, of U.S. soldiers killing uh, Viet Cong. In fact, of course, this was part and parcel of a cover-up, and that the local colonel, Colonel Henderson, attempted to do everything he could to ensure that no real accounts of the massacre ever were released to the public. Mm-hmm. And in the in the American archives, you can find the same story endlessly reproduced, the Colonel Henderson story. And I think that when we're talking about specifically violence, we have to look at, at the Ottoman archives often um, as versions of this, where people are attempting to cover up violence that took place either for their own ends over the ends of the larger state apparatus. Can I just say one more thing? I think that it's important to bear in mind that the regime of Abdulhamid II was autocratic in nature. That is to say, it was attempting to control not only a monopoly of legitimate violence or force, but also a monopoly of legitimate truth, Mm. narrative. So we have to bear that in mind. When we're talking about an authoritarian state where censorship is central, We have to look at the official documents with that awareness. But of course, I don't think we can just overcome this credibility issue, you know, 100%. It's especially the subject matters which are, you know, related, relevant to mass violence. And also, you know, in the the case of Armenian genocide or in the case of, you know, Greek expulsion and so on and so forth. Always, there are always controversial issues, you know, and smoking guns uh, on the air. No, I mean, it really speaks to the the danger of even searching for a smoking gun, right? It's <laughs> another I, issue. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But uh, even even in trying to triangulate, you can there's only so much you can do in sort of mm-hmm. putting your sources in conversation in a way mm-hmm. that brings mm-hmm. out the quote unquote truth. And, and, and actually, just just one one point more, this credibility issue, which was a little bit convenient for me, uh, is because of the fact that um, I 
I read uh, the, the narratives of perpetrators who were explaining their acts, you know, course, with yeah. pride, with honor, because it was like a service, like a service for them to, I mean, it, it was, it was a, like a national duty or honorary supreme duty for them to serve the interests of the nation, interests of, interest of the state and interests of their home, uh, their own town. So uh, most of the part, in order to explain the mass violence which was happening in different time periods in Aintab, I really, really reach out information from the sources of, let's say, perpetrators. Yeah. Or the bystanders. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I've definitely come across that in, say, Armenian counts from an earlier period where you have a large massacre of uh, a- arriving Muslim immigrants by nearby Armenian villagers. And the source will say, like, oh, we killed hundreds of them or something. And actually, you realize the, the source you're reading might be an Armenian account that exaggerates how many people were killed in order to emphasize the the heroism of that place, especially in the context of maybe a sense of defeat that happens later. So can't assume that the, the sources are trying to mislead you in the direction that you are worried about being misled. Sometimes they're actually bragging about the thing you want to study. I'm also like now thinking about my own research, which is not really related, but in the end, like it's in historical work, it's the, always the question in my mind is like, who is the audience mm-hmm. and who is going to consume? Yeah. Like the, then, then actually the credibility and the, some of the questions that you're asking is actually between the lines in terms of the motivation of producing that, that particular mm-hmm. uh, written record. And that is something probably we can uh, keep in mind, uh, especially in, like, in the cases of... Um, mass violence and whether it's a printed book or whether it's handwritten among what kind of communities that that, that has been like circulated and the ones that survived the kind of historical records that survived the kind of historical records cannot survive where they are housed like this whole like the efforts of like traveling to find out one piece of information what does this mean where they located today in terms of like your work I think these are all kind of part of the larger narrative um, and the this effort to put all these pieces together. Yeah. I was just going to say that one of the things that kind of caught me off guard was when I was looking at the missionary reports of the violence, the original aim was sometimes to inform the local missionary community. And then at other times it was to inform the larger world. And this actually, you can see that there's a schism within the missionary ranks on this issue right. yeah. because the... Younger generations of missionaries often were born in the local areas, and they felt a need to communicate what had happened to their communities to the broader world to enact change. Mm-hmm. Whereas the older generation was far more concerned with the broader project mm-hmm. and often worried that if the knowledge came out, that they were the disseminators of these massacre stories to the rest of the world, sure. that the whole project of the ABCFM and the Ottoman Empire would end. So there's this enormous tension mm-hmm. that leads to people leaving the ABCFM right. to set out as journalists, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that there's, even to say within the missionary ranks, that there's a, there's not a single set of audiences. In fact, in some cases, a letter which was specifically intended for a particular individual might have been copied by someone else mm-hmm. and then sent to another person for another purpose. You have to kind of track right. it down to the, the first uh, 
iteration right. and that's a that's a very difficult thing but your point about audience i think is central mm -hmm. to this whole thing yeah. mm -hmm. why was this written and why was it why how did it end up in the archive right why was it kept in the archive right and how did you have access to it mm -hmm. these are questions that i think also mm -hmm. have to tell us about the state today mm -hmm. yeah absolutely the missionaries are really fascinating just because they speak to so many different audiences that they adopt a completely different tone and set of vocabulary. You see this again and again that when they're addressing like a global audience, some of the things they write are, you know, very sensational, right? But then when you look at their correspondence with each other, there's a much more nuanced language sometimes. And there's a much different way that they describe things. So sort of changing the filter of how of, of, of nuance and detail, it's very frustrating, right? That that sources are intentionally sort of stripped to their essence for a particular uh, purpose. Just another another point. Just I I just wanna I just wanna add is that our main problem also is has to do with this denial of state responsibility. Since there is no acknowledgement of the state responsibility for this violence, when we go to the Ottoman archives, we always hear the same story. You know, reproduction. Always the same story, the same actor, the same narrative, and so on and so forth. That begs for question. That makes you. So think, oh, there should be someone, something else. There should be, you know, another narrative. Right. And I mean, maybe to conclude, we have to at least gesture to, you know, we've talked a lot about oral transmission of, of narratives and whatnot. And of course, there's a huge work to be done on the subject of memory and especially um, sort of anthropological, ethnographic work yeah. on memory of violence uh, uh, in Turkey, which the, the, the events we were talking about now happened Quite a long time ago, nobody who experienced them is alive in the case of, uh, you know, the Hamidian massacres of the 1890s. And yet they aren't so long ago that people don't have narratives that might also inform us. But it's very difficult work since national historiography, what people read in the newspapers, all sorts of voices from the past find their way into um, the oral history of right. the present, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So there's really... Um, a lot of untangling to be done. Violence is a topic that sort of, as we've said throughout this uh, podcast, makes it especially difficult um, sort of piecing together a story from sources that may be uh, trying to represent, represent the past in a particular way. But ultimately, it's a issue faced by anyone who's working with historical sources. Right. I hope this conversation, which in some ways has been specific to the late Ottoman experience, <laughs> in many ways really, does help uh, form the study of historical sources and topics in Ottoman history, other topics in Ottoman history. I think looking at the late Ottoman case is actually speaking to a much more universal concern of historians Absolutely. Uh, in yeah. a very okay. particular exactly. and particularly complex historical context and milieu, these local settings we've talked about mm -hmm. today. Owen and Umit, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and having this long conversation with us today about your work and about your methods. My pleasure. It's been my pleasure as well. Thank you. It was thank our you. pleasure to have you on. Sechil, thanks for joining us in the conversation Thanks for today. having me. Always nice to have you on. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in, staying to the end of this discussion on the topic of studying violence of the late Ottoman period. We want to direct you to our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can find out about the work of Umit Kurt and Owen Miller, as well as other books and articles that may be uh, further reading uh, on, on our subject. That's all for this episode. Join us next time. And until then, take care.